Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we'll be talking about two movies from the 80s. I think these are two really great Best Picture winners. So these two movies, Terms of Endearment and Amadeus from 83 and 84, were the last time two leading performances were nominated in actress and actor, respectively, and the last time one of them won. We'll get into why this happened, why this hasn't happened since, trying to break down a lot of the Academy mindset, because this is a pretty rare thing to happen. We'll go through all the times it has happened in actress and actor, but overall, I think these two movies have really great performances and are going to be really fun to talk about. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about these. I think a lot of these movies were actually really good. I talk a lot about the 70s being a great decade, but looking at the Best Picture winners of the 80s, I get why these films connect with a lot of people, and these two in particular couldn't be more different, but I think also have a lot of similarities that I'm excited to unpack as well, especially in the performances. I have some really nice and maybe not so nice things to say, but I also want to ask you about when we get there about other nominees from the races, because I really like some of the other ones too. I'm so curious what that could mean. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I'm prepared to be the woman of the people for terms of endearment since most people love that movie and Siskel and Ebert both agree that it's great too. So we're even defying them today. (laughs) So for terms of endearment, which is the first movie we'll discuss, Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger were nominated, and Shirley MacLaine won. Only five times in Oscar history have we had two women nominated in Best Actress from the same movie. So we'll just run through these quickly. In 1950, we had Ann Baxter and Betty Davis for All About Eve. In 1959, Katherine Hepburn and Elizabeth Taylor for Suddenly Last Summer. 1977, Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine again for The Turning Point. 1983, the year we're talking about today, Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger, and 1991, which is the last time that this happened, we had Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon for Thelma and Louise. Most notable thing here is that Shirley MacLaine, for Terms of Endearment, is the only one to have won the Best Actress Oscar when competing against her co-star. So it's a really big deal. It adds a lot, I think, to her win that she was able to pull that off, especially when Deborah Winger also gave an amazing performance, in my opinion, in the movie. I definitely agree. How do you feel about the other four times this happened? Like, I know we love All About Eve, Mm -hmm. but do you think any of the others should have won? I have a really crazy take for 1950, which is that I would have voted for Gloria Swanson for Sunset Boulevard. We'll definitely have to cover that race at some point. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to yell at me, though. I think that is a great year, but I'm just like kind of scared to cover it. And then for 1991, I mean, Thelma and Louise, the last time that this happens, I would vote for Jodie Foster for Silence of the Lambs. So I feel kind of like this instance is the one where I agree with what happened. Not to step on my opinion later. The Mm -hmm. other cases, I don't think I would have voted for anyone. Well, not even all about Eve. I'm shocked. I mean, I love Sunset Boulevard. Betty Davis is like so (laughs) close behind. I mean, any other day you ask me, it might be her. And then getting into the times this happened in Best Actor, there are 12 instances. In 1935, Clark Gable, Charles Lawton, and Franco Tone were nominated for Mutiny on the Bounty. 
1944, Bing Crosby and Barry Fitzgerald for Going My Way. 1953, Montgomery Clift and Burt Lancaster for From Here to Eternity. 56, James Dean and Rock Hudson for Giant. 58, Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier for The Defiant Ones. 61, Maximilian Schell and Spencer Tracy for Judgment at Nuremberg. 64, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole for Beckett. Your favorite. (laughs) (laughs) No comment. (laughs) 69, Dustin Hoffman and John Voight for Midnight Cowboy. 72, Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier for Sleuth. 76, Peter Finch and William Holden for Network. 83, Tom Courtney and Albert Finney for The Dresser. And the last instance in what we'll also be talking about today in 1984, F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hulse for Amadeus. I think there are a couple interesting things about this list. First off, from 35, we have three actors nominated. Yeah. And then the other thing that I found interesting was that five of these had won Best Picture. I think that's something that definitely helped in these cases. But what do you think about these movies and these performances? That thing that you just said about a few of them being Best Picture winners, I think connects with what we'll talk about with Terms of Endearment, which is that in the Best Actress category, this only corresponds with two of them, All About Eve and Terms of Endearment. And those are both films with female relationships at the center. And that is rarely something that we see in Best Picture winners. They're never led Mm -hmm. by women, hardly ever. And if they are, it's not multiple women doing that. But with Best Mm -hmm. Actor... Like, looking at these, you have a lot of really male-heavy movies that are here, especially in the earlier days. So, ultimately, that's not that surprising to me. Just a way to illuminate that further. I do love a good number of these performances. Looking at the ones on the list, we talked about this on our 64 episode, but I would have given Peter O'Toole Best Actor for Beckett. (laughs) (laughs) I love him in that, and it's a crime that he never won a competitive Oscar. I love Peter Finch's win for Network, and I worship at the altar of F. Murray Abraham in Amadeus. <laughs> He's astounding. Other names here, I mean, just comparing the list, you have five versus 12 between actress and actor, but there are a lot of huge names here. I haven't seen a good number of these. There are some that mm. I would like have to clockwork orange you to watch. <laughs> they would be really hard. <laughs> Harder than Beckett? Yeah, I'm not going to say which one, (laughs) because I want you to discover it on your own. I mean, based on the names alone, I would love to see From Here to Eternity and Giant Mm -hmm. and Sleuth. So four (laughs) of these people have won against their co-star, Bing Crosby, for Going My Way, Maximilian Schell for Judgment at Nuremberg, Peter Finch for Network, and lastly, F. Murray Abraham for Amadeus. It is really curious that 1984 is the last time this ever happened. Mm -hmm. It feels like a day in the past when category fraud was just not a thing that ran rampant in the guilds and the academy. Yeah, and it's not like movies stopped having co-lead performances. Right. It's shocking, yeah. Yeah, and so much of that is because like back in the day... Best Actor was a category for stars. We've talked about this. And the supporting categories were for your character actors and people who were Mm -hmm. kind of designated as supporting actors. So for someone like 
Clark Gable to be in supporting would be crazy. It just would not happen. Whereas like today, they'll gladly be in supporting because they can win an Oscar. We have a listener question from Tom. He asked, what is the most egregious recent case of co-leads being split into lead and supporting categories when they should have both just been in lead? For me, for best actor, it was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like that's the one where it was just so clear to me that Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt were co-leads of this film. Brad Pitt was not in supporting, but he was campaigned Mm -hmm. as supporting and won in supporting actor all year. That was a very strong year in lead actor. I do think he still would have gotten in, actually, Mm -hmm. even in that intense year. But I don't know what would have happened. I still think Joaquin Phoenix probably would have beaten him for Joker. So it's probably good for him that he won in supporting. Sad but true. Yeah. Yeah, right. I'm going to answer this question in not how uh, Tom asked it, but (laughs) I think the last case where we have two performances that were nominated in supporting where one should have been in lead was Judas and the Black Messiah. I can see Lakeith being in supporting, but Daniel Kaluuya being in supporting is just horrible. (laughs) Like there's no reason for that. And then for best actress, the biggest one to me is the favorite. Or I guess the last, because Rachel Weisz and Olivia Coleman and probably Emma Stone should have all been in lead. I mean, it got Olivia her Oscar, which is incredible. But do you think that would have hurt her chances if like Rachel would have been in lead with her? It's really hard because this episode we are kind of debunking the myth of vote splitting because we have examples where people mm-hmm. won. But I do think Glenn would have won. It would have been super, super narrow. Yeah. And then mine, so Carol, we should have had Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett as leads. It is a co-lead film. Very excited since Christmas time is coming. I have an excuse to watch it again, as it's one of my favorite Christmas movies. So let's start with our Best Picture winner from 1983, Terms of Endearment. Description here, Aurora, a finicky woman, is in search of true love while her daughter faces marital issues. Together, they help each other deal with problems and find reasons to live a joyful life. This was directed by James L. Brooks. It stars Shirley MacLaine, Deborah Winger, Jack Nicholson, John Lithgow, and Jeff Daniels. It was made on an $8 million budget and became the second highest grossing film of 1983, earning $165 million, right behind Return of the Jedi. This won a ton of awards, so precursors here won the DGA for James L. Brooks. He also won the WGA. For Golden Globes, it won Motion Picture Drama, Actress Drama for McLean, Supporting Actor for Nicholson, and Screenplay. And Deborah Winger was also nominated for Best Actress Drama, and James L. Brooks was nominated for Director. At the New York Film Critics Circle, it won Best Film, Actress for McLean, Winger was Runner-Up, and Best Supporting Actor for Jack Nicholson. At the L.A. Film Critics Circle, it won Best Film, Director, Actress for McLean, Supporting Actor for Nicholson, and Screenplay. At the Oscars, it won five. Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Actress for McLean, and Supporting Actor for Nicholson, which is kind of like the big five light, I will call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It was nominated for six others. Deborah Winger for Actress, John Lithgow for Supporting Actor, Art Direction, Editing, Score, and Sound. And just for context at these Oscars, the other nominees for Picture were The Right Stuff, The Big Chill, The Dresser, and Tender Mercies. 
So you kind of made it clear in the beginning that you're like middle of the road on this, but you also said it was great. So I need more insight into how you felt about Terms of Endearment. So obviously starting off, huge box office, and this had resonated with critics and audiences. So it was really well liked, I think, as James L. Brooks's first movie. This is super impressive, like to come out super strong, winning three Oscars alone. The big ones, too. Yeah. I mean, with your debut, like, you can't beat that. So there are definitely things from this movie and just the movie as a whole that I appreciate. But I don't think Brooks's direction or his, like, super heartfelt stories resonate with me, which sounds so weird. Like, we've covered broadcast news on the pod before, and you know how I didn't connect with that either a five-star film (laughs) just the way that it is and as good as it gets which is like fine to me that one's fine to me too I'm not gonna defend that one so these being his big three and I don't know if the connection being Jack Nicholson who I like (laughs) don't love I wrote in my letterbox review like he's attractive like he always has women on his shoulder and it's like he's this raucous man And I, like, didn't care for that side storyline. And, like, you know, starting out, that Aurora is going to end up falling for him. So I don't know. Maybe that was just a little troublesome for me. Like, having to endure his, like, super bro-y personality. Just, like, unbearably so. And I think the way we'll get to the ending, I think the way they treat that, it felt, like, very glazed over. I was like sobbing on my couch, yes, but also parts like I wanted to feel a deeper connection to it, and I didn't. And that's probably from me being a man watching this movie, but I definitely also appreciated like that mother-daughter relationship and like how strong they are together. Not only that, but them having amazing performances too. First, this movie is just so real to me. It is painfully real. I think that's what I love about his movies, in particular, Broadcast News and Terms of Endearment, but even more so in this one. I think, like, he doesn't feel the need to make his characters likable. And here in this screenplay, which I think is, like, pretty brilliant, he makes a movie that feels almost more like a boyhood or some type of movie like that, where he's just chronicling these people's lives. Very normal, unlikable, but also likable at the same time women. And their sexual awakenings or reawakenings and how they are together as mother and daughter and how life just happens. We should also say right now that we will be spoiling this movie because I think you have to talk about the ending to talk about the Mm -hmm. performances. So just beware. If you don't want it spoiled, please feel free to skip to Amadeus, which we will also be spoiling. (laughs) Did you know before you saw this movie that it was a cancer movie or not? I knew that someone was going to die, but I didn't know that it was from cancer. Okay. But did you know that it was going to be Emma and not Aurora that would die? I think I did. Okay. I think doing some light reading before I saw the movie and people talking about this in connection with the Oscars and like Deborah Winger's performance, Mm -hmm. I think that's how it got spoiled. Okay. But I was like... Is she going to commit suicide? Is she going to die in a car accident? Like, what's going to happen? Yeah, I think what I like about it is that it's not your cancer movie that you usually get, which is, like, 
this person is diagnosed in the first 10 minutes and then you spend the next mm-hmm. two hours just like in and out of a hospital maybe they go into remission like it's this whole story about that and this isn't that it isn't a cancer movie until it becomes one very close to the end which mm-hmm. is super jarring when it happens and just like knocks me out this is the movie that definitely makes me cry the hardest, but I wouldn't consider a go-to cry movie because it is not enjoyable. I called my mom yesterday and was like, I'm going to watch this movie, but I really will. I think I'm going to stop. Like, I'm not, I'm just not going to watch the end. <laughs> I'm just not, I can't do it again because it is way too hard. And then of course I ended up watching the whole thing anyway, because mm-hmm. I couldn't stop. I had to just like see it, but the relationships are just really real. I'm so glad that, the women in this movie got this treatment as characters and that these actresses both were able to give such complex performances. We can like save the performance conversation for a little bit, but I do love it. I don't think it's a perfect movie, but I think it's one that really connects with a lot of people and I can totally understand why that is and why it won Best Picture in particular. So before we talk about the leads, you touched on Jack Nicholson a little bit, but what did you think of the supporting male characters, like, or the performances? So Jack Nicholson, Jeff Daniels, and John Lithgow. Did you just not like him because you couldn't get, like, her attraction to him? Or, like, what was it, I guess? Because I like him in it. I was a little shocked, honestly, when I saw that he won. (laughs) I just don't. (laughs) love his playboy character that he always does i guess i have trouble with really you're gonna fall for this after 15 years of not going on a date not doing anything with a man like this is who you're gonna go for this ex-astronaut what did you like about his performance i like that i could tell shirley mclean had a lot of fun making this movie with him they have great chemistry both of these characters i think how would i describe it it feels like they're both really difficult people And they kind of know that about themselves and about each other. Mm -hmm. And I like that when they're working together. And yes, he's an astronaut, but at the end of the day, he's also kind of a himbo. And James L. Brooks loves his himbos. (laughs) (laughs) Just like my favorite one ever, William Hurt and Broadcast News. (laughs) But I totally get why she likes him. He's a neighbor. He's an astronaut, which is like a really cool career to have had. He's an ex-astronaut, so he's not going to go to space again. It also Mm -hmm. really plays into the fact that they're in Houston, so it's a big NASA place. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it works with the location. I don't know. He's just, like, fun for her to be around, and I like the dynamic that they have. It is super heightened. Like, some scenes are absolutely ridiculous, like the car and the beach. That's very 80s to me. Like, it just feels like it it belongs in an 80s movie. And I am a Jack Nicholson fan. I like him in most movies. I would say, like, especially the earlier ones. I mean, not that this... He's, like, pretty old in this still, too. But, like, 80s and earlier, I really like. Apparently on set, a lot of their scenes together were improvised. And he would, like, show up naked some days. That's Just to, like, shock her. I don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't need that. (laughs) I do appreciate that they have, like, such conflicting personalities. And, like, James L. Brooks wanted to tackle that. And, Mm -hmm. like, it's adapted from a novel. But the way that they come together, I think, is impressive. Like, it takes time. And Mm -hmm. their journey is fun in a way. Yeah. But it's, like, too crude, I think. 
I mean, that's why it works in the end, but... Jeff Daniels in this movie, I hate his character. He's so awful. Also, his name is Flap. He's incredibly selfish. He doesn't care about his children. He doesn't care about his wife. He treats her horribly. He makes her, like, move around the country for him. Awful. Mm -hmm. But Jeff Daniels does have that, like, dumb look on his face at all times that works in this movie for this character. (laughs) And then John Lithgow, I really liked. Mm -hmm. But again, why is she falling for this man? I can't explain women to you. I don't know. I I just, (laughs) it made sense to me. (laughs) This is the same problem that you have with broadcast news. There you go. These are very real relationships between men and women. This happens all the time. Something I stay away from, so that's probably why it's... <laughs> I don't understand. I truly wish that I could. I mean, she's probably attracted to, like, the stability of his life and mm-hmm. the fact that he could provide for her. It's never going to happen, but, you know, it's definitely part of that intrigue, I can see. Do you agree with what Aurora does in the beginning, like, the day before Emma's getting married to be like, you shouldn't marry this man? Yeah. She shouldn't marry that man. (laughs) I am much more of an Aurora, though, than an Emma. Like, when Shirley MacLaine does anything in this movie, I relate to it, even if it's bad. Not Like, Like, Emma is just so positive and, like, gives people the benefit of the Mm -hmm. doubt. Aurora is 100% a fire sign through and through. Like, has she just is on her own planet at times. Like, when all of her suitors Mm -hmm. are there and she's just like, no, not interested. She also has the meanest quote in the movie when she says, you're not special enough to overcome a bad marriage. That's like amazing writing. Yeah. A plus. Like painfully honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did like the structure of the movie work for you where it was, you kind of talked about this with the ending, but with like the two parallel storylines of Aurora and Emma and these relationships and then the cancer reveal coming quite late. How did you feel about the structure and like the script that way? I think maybe that's why it was a little rough for me. Like the cancer thing, like it's malignant on the phone call, like came out of nowhere and caught me off guard to a point that like I didn't feel anything from that. And maybe that was partly due to like the entire movie. Her life is pretty miserable, but like she is so positive that nothing bad is really happening And it's like you're waiting for something to happen. And so that to me was like, okay, this is what we've been waiting for. I think the parallel storylines work really well. And the way they intertwine too. like, yes, they are separate, but they also come together quite a lot. So I think that as a storytelling device worked really well here. But getting back to the cancer, I think it shows up so late for me that it's more of like a cop out. Oh, oh. That's so wrong. I'm sorry. It's just like, I can't, I can't hear that. I don't know if there's a better way to deal with that or not. Or maybe I just have to think about it longer. I guess like a cop out how? Like had she died in a car accident, that would have probably been a worse reveal than like this slow developing thing that's killing her. I don't know. Like if they had alerted us to it or foreshadowed this earlier in the movie... Would I have liked it more? I don't know. Do you feel like we didn't need that? Like you, I'm assuming you like how it comes about and like how the story functions. 
So the first part, which I think is like a huge part of Shirley MacLaine that I like of Aurora and her character is that the film opens with her checking on Emma as a baby, afraid that she's going to die in the night, which is mm-hmm. an irrational sometimes or maybe even rational how do you even describe motherhood in a rational way i don't know fear Mm -hmm. that women have which is like is my baby just going to like not be okay and i love how she almost climbs into her crib like with these heels on (laughs) it's just so great and of course she starts crying and then she's like there we go like that's better and leaves because she wants to know she's alive (laughs) and that that makes me cry on rewatch because i'm like her greatest fear is coming ultimately it's decades later but that's what ends up happening Mm -hmm. is she's going to check on her baby again and she's not going to be okay oh i'm going to start crying we're going to be good not going to cry okay (laughs) they are so different and they think of their relationship in different ways but they talk every single day they have this just like wonderful relationship and when they diagnose her it feels mean I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I love this woman as unlikable as she is and all of her flaws. I was like, I want to see the rest of her life. I want to know, Mm -hmm. does she find a better relationship? Does she leave him? Does she take the boys? What kind of men does she raise them to be? And how does she raise her little baby? You've lived with this character for over an hour. And because it's in these real moments and through this real relationship, you know her. And when they diagnose it, to me, it just like... It rips the rug up from under you totally. And that's what happens in real life when someone close to you has cancer. You don't get foreshadowing. You don't get Mm -hmm. like clues along the way that this horrible fate is going to happen to this person. It just happens and you have to deal with it. And I think it's just like it's it's so real. Even like the way that she says goodbye to the characters, which we can um, talk about when we talk about her performance. I will always, like, admire that in a movie when you can, like, capture that and what that feels like. And it's why it's so intense, but I think it's why a lot of viewers connect with it. Have you seen the sequel to this? No. The Evening Star? No. No. It got bad reviews and it was a bomb. Like, I'm I'm so good with this one. <laughs> I mean, the way you talk about them saying goodbye and, like, closing off the story, I feel like it really didn't need a sequel to like follow up with no aurora and the grandchildren no i mean that's but that's what happens when you have a box office success is that they want to make a sequel yeah or a part two (laughs) don't start (laughs) (laughs) so then getting into deborah winger and shirley mclean's performances we can kind of use that to talk about the ending too so whichever you want to start with go for it let's start with shirley mclean since she won Mm -hmm. i love her in this movie as i kind of hinted at like i just love aurora as a character i think she's hilarious and i feel like i know this woman what i really like about her performance is that she and what i like about both of these so this is actually something i mentioned on our review of the last duel where it doesn't work in that movie but i think it works in this movie which is that sometimes i feel like she and deborah winger are in two different movies But I think that the reason why it works here is because they're supposed to be so different. They're supposed to have these completely different outlooks on life and love and relationships. And then when they come together, it has this nice synergy that I really respond Mm -hmm. to. I think that Shirley's performance is so restrained, which I appreciate. But she also allows her character to have really big moments 
both when you expect them and when you don't. I think sometimes what you would think of that a movie character might do, she does the opposite and it really works. And then her other big moments, I love. I love when Emma's in the hospital and she's screaming at the nurses to give her her Mm -hmm. shot. Oh my God, so good. So I just love every choice she makes here. I think she, she sparkles in a really sparkly script. I just love her. You mentioning her trying to get into that crib as a first moment that we meet a character mm-hmm. is is such a great opening. And I felt that everything that came afterwards, it just felt so fresh from Shirley MacLaine. Her acting in this movie is just really smart. Like you can tell that she knows what she's doing, like as a mother. And the movie is bookended by her. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised that she won. Um, And I really love her win, actually. And the fact that this was her last nominated performance and the fact that she only won for this out of six total is very deserving. I I really liked her here. It is crazy that this is her last Oscar nomination and win. She hasn't Mm -hmm. gotten another. But yeah, a great career. What did you think of Deborah Winger? Had you seen her in anything else before? She's kind of elusive. Is this her biggest movie? Because, yeah, looking through IMDb, I was like, Yes, an officer and a gentleman, but that was like the only other of note. Also, though, we have to point out an Ohio girl. She's from Cleveland Heights. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those, I mean, those are the big ones. She was also an urban cowboy. Have you seen the the Jonathan Demme movie with Anne Hathaway, Rachel Getting Married? She's in that. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. She was in Kajillionaire, too. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) How did I forget? Miranda July and Deborah Winger, that's a funny combination. I thought Deborah was also really great here. Definitely a co-lead movie. I think she shows more restraint than Shirley does. And I think her acting is super believable as well. Like when she's in the supermarket, like you can feel the pain, but the fact that she just has to keep going. Mm-hmm. That's probably my favorite moment from her, apart from the ending again. <laughs> But how do you feel about Deborah's performance? And then if you want to compare her and Shirley. Yeah, I love her in this. My very first time watching it, her performance was actually the one where I was like, how did she not win? Mainly Mm -hmm. just because of her scene at the end um, when she's saying goodbye to her boys. I was like, how does this not win the Oscar? Mm -hmm. But on rewatch, I see why Shirley MacLaine won. But I do love Deborah's performance here. I will echo like the scene in the grocery store when she doesn't have enough money. That also really hits me hard. When she goes to New York with Patsy and she just realizes that she's just lived this completely different life from all of these women there. Mm -hmm. I think she does like pretty astonishing work here i think that the scene with her when she's saying goodbye to her boys in the hospital is like that's something that an actor does that has like stayed with me for years when she's trying so hard to get through to tommy the oldest boy who's just such a brat and being so difficult again a real character he's not afraid to show how real kids would be like in this moment it's not some like Mm -hmm. nicholas sparks ending right I love her in that scene. I was expecting Tommy to have some like rebellious, really angry scene, but like even that didn't happen. Speaking of the other male performances, we didn't mention Danny DeVito. Oh my God, I know, right? (laughs) 
I still don't understand his character. He's just just a good presence in the movie. And with Tommy and Teddy, Teddy is the reason I think I broke down mm-hmm. during that final scene. He can't keep it together, but Emma has to. Yes. And that is really hard. Oh, she's just being such a good mom to them and just... Mm-hmm. And when she says at the end, when she's like, that went better like than I thought it would, ugh, kills me. But even like both of them, Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger together, like when Emma finally does die and the nurse says like she's gone and it's just like, again, very abrupt. Jeff Daniels is asleep. Mm-hmm. And of course, Aurora is just sitting there. She's the one who's awake and with her in her last moments it's just like a really really beautiful way to end for Mm -hmm. their relationship i think that whole final scene is picture perfect like flap has been on the outside for a long time he's cheated on her and emma and aurora having that final moment like looking at each other Mm -hmm. and she knew you know that was it i think that's a great way but it's just so understated too like yes it's real this is Again, everything we've talked about here and with broadcast news, but like I wanted it to break my heart so much more in a way. Oh my God. I think it's just, it it does enough for me. It's like really heartbreaking. It's just very simple. And then afterwards when Aurora is like, I thought this would be easier knowing that it's been coming for so long, Mm -hmm. but it's not. And she breaks down too. It's all great acting. Yeah. And that's something like so many people say, I think when you're like struggling with someone like with a family member who has an illness like that, that is terminal, like you think it will be a relief when it happens and you don't dread mm-hmm. it anymore, but it's it's not. Yeah. They get that right in the script. Thinking about Jack Nicholson again at the end, I do love when he's talking to Tommy about him being a swimmer. I think that's really cute mm-hmm. and yeah. love that. What did you think of him not keeping the kids? And them going to be with Aurora and her raising them. That shook me when I first saw it. I was like, what is happening right now? I mean, it just fits with him being a horrible person. Mm -hmm. The fact that they had the conversation before she passed away of like where the kid's going to go. And he's like, yeah, it's fine. They can be with her. Like you were their father. Right. Why are you not like fighting for them? Oh, my God. I mean, they're totally better off being with Aurora. But... My God. Okay. (laughs) So if you were making this today and had to recast Aurora and Emma, who would you choose? Okay. So for Aurora, I would choose Annette Bening. I feel like she could do a really good job in that role. And I also feel like if Olivia Coleman were a little older, she could also really do it. She has like that (laughs) charm to her that I really love in the humor. Mm -hmm. For Emma, I think... Emma Stone would be great. I think she has like very large expressive eyes like Deborah Winger does. And I think she could pull off like every scene in this movie. I was going to jokingly say Emma Stone. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought you would hate that. No, no, I like it. I think it's good. And I think for Aurora, I feel like Glenn Close would be a good choice too. Mm -hmm. Do you think anything from this movie was snubbed? Not really. I think it, it has quite a few nominations. I feel the same way. 11, it's a lot of nominations. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. multiple acting, winning picture and director and screenplay. That's that's a lot. I feel good about that. 
Maybe even too many. I mean, I would say that, but... I do find the score to be irritating. That might be an unpopular opinion. (laughs) (laughs) It just, like, swells at the moments when you think it will, and it's just like, okay, come on, I get it. Very 80s rom-com kind of feel to it. Mm -hmm. And then how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? It really depends, but I think pretty well still. It has a really strong script, and with performances like that, I feel like they would respond well to it. This does Mm -hmm. feel very 80s to me. I've said that a couple of times, and I don't think they would respond as strongly to it as they did back then, but I think critics would still connect with it, though. And it does, I guess, feel kind of like, I mean, we haven't seen Belfast yet, but it could feel like something like that, like crowd pleaser going to hit with critics and audiences. What do you think? I agree. I don't think it would have gotten 11 nominations. I understand like the box office love for it and the wide appeal pretty much leading to all of those nominations. But then do you also think Winger and McLean would have been nominated in lead? And do you think Shirley still would have won? I think, yes, Shirley would have won and Winger would have won. I think... If you put her in supporting, she wins. And I think if, no matter what, to me, Shirley MacLaine's winning this Oscar, the way for Deborah Winger to win it isn't supporting. Just category Mm. frauded up. So according to Screen Time Central, Deborah Winger's actually in 10 more minutes of the movie than Shirley MacLaine is. Kind of shocking. I still think she would be in supporting, though. (laughs) (laughs) As much as it does feel like her movie at times, it just like it feels like more of an Academy thing to do to put her in supporting and McLean in lead. It really is about her, but I feel like it's Shirley's movie. I mean, I think it's a toss up. I think it depends like who mm-hmm. you talk to. Um, we had a lot of really passionate responses when we asked this on Twitter. <laughs> I think let's just talk more specifically about Best Actress. This year, the nominees, so Shirley was our winner. We also had Jane Alexander for Testament, Meryl Streep for Silkwood, Julie Walters for Educating Rita, and Deborah Winger for Terms of Endearment. Who would you have voted for? Slash, did the Academy get it right? I still would have voted for Shirley MacLaine. What about you? It's really hard. Um, I do think the Academy got it right. I really love Shirley MacLaine in this movie. I mean, Deborah Winger, too. Would have loved a tie this year. Mm Mm-hmm. But I have to say, I really love Meryl in Silkwood. She is so good in this movie. Mike Nichols' film, it's really hard to find. I watched it. I don't even remember. I think like Film Forum or something was doing like a screening online during COVID. And Meryl, this is in my top five of Meryl Street performances. So I could easily give this one to her and just say like, okay, Shirley gets her retroactive win for The Apartment. And we take away one of Elizabeth Taylor's Oscars. Oof. I mean, Butterfield 8, it's fine. She doesn't need that one. We could give that to Shirley MacLaine. Even though I do love this win a lot, I think she deserves it. I can make a case for a couple of them. I watched Educating Mm -hmm. Rita on YouTube. It is free there. And Julie Walters was great, too. That movie isn't as good as Silkwood or Terms of Endearment, I don't think. I have not watched Testament with Jane Alexander, but I do love her and all the President's Men. That might be an unpopular opinion. Mm And do you think the Academy got it right in supporting actor as well, giving it to Jack Nicholson and not John Lithgow? Yes, I do think they got it right. Jack Nicholson's great. He's a scene stealer. Mm -hmm. He and McLean are, I love them together. 
This is his middle Oscar, too. It's his second of three. Mm-hmm. So he'll still win for as good as it gets. And he already has one flew over the cuckoo's nest under his belts at this point. So I love the screenplay win adapted by the Larry McMurtry book. This is Larry McMurtry's favorite book that he'd written. So love that win. I think the screenplay is great. Director, I do think this movie is well directed, but I can make a case for some others. Mainly your favorite Bergman for Fanny and Alexander. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Mike Nichols for Silkwood. The other nominees, we had Peter Yates for The Dresser and Bruce Beresford for Tender Mercies. I personally am shocked that Philip Kaufman was not nominated for The Right Stuff. The Right Stuff is really good. It's three hours long, but I actually think you might like this one. It's like a very another very human drama, but it's about these astronauts. And I really liked it. Okay. Semi-true or no? Um, it is. And it there's this whole story, too, about like John Glenn, who was running for... He was in the primary at this point for president. And Ed Harris plays him in this movie. And there's this whole thing about whether this movie like derailed his campaign, even though he's portrayed really well in the movie. Um, (laughs) But it's good. Yeah, they're all playing real people. Sam Shepard, Dennis Quaid, Scott Glenn. It's a great cast. Barbara Hershey, our girl (laughs) from Black Swan. I mean, and and other things, but that's always how I think of her. (laughs) I think director and picture wise, I am just such a big fan of the big chill. Do we know why that wasn't? In the running, really, to win? It had quite a few nominations other places. Like, it was nominated at the DGA, BAFTA Screenplay, Golden Globe Musical or Comedy, Golden Globe Screenplay. So it's three nominations. We had Picture, Supporting Actress for Glenn, and um, Screenplay. The Big Chill almost just feels like if a Greatest Hits album became a movie, I don't think it has anything to, like, cling on to like Terms of Endearment does. Terms of endearment, you walk out like feeling something. And I think here it's kind of like a vibe movie. Like it's just a hang with all these friends. And I think with like the box office and the critical success of Terms of Endearment, it just wasn't going to hit with that one. But like The Dresser, ugh. I tried watching that once and did not finish it. Didn't make it far. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So don't try that. Um, Same with Tender Mercies. No, thank you. The Big Chill, I know it does have its fans, but I think a lot of people are also kind of like middle of the road on The Big Chill. So maybe that's why it doesn't inspire the same kind of like love that Terms of Endearment did with people watching. Yeah, Terms of Endearment, I think, was bound for success super early on, just for all of those reasons that you've mentioned. So I just wanted like Glenn to win. You know who I would have voted for? Cher in Silkwood. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that movie. It's so good. Okay, I'll have to watch. Yeah, giving it two, giving it both actress wins. Wow. Maybe. Like, I'm still very torn on Best Actress. It's really hard to (laughs) figure out. But I think at this moment in time, I will still say Shirley MacLaine. So is that your answer for if you could give this movie one Oscar? What would it be? Is it Shirley? Mm. (sighs) Um, Or is it Jack Nicholson? (laughs) I'm going to cheat. I'm going to do two, and I'm going to say a tie between Deborah Winger and <laughs> Shirley MacLaine for Best Actress, our second in history. I'm just going to rewrite it today. It's our show. We can do whatever we want. That's true. I would give it to Shirley. 
If we have to pick one, I would pick Shirley. Okay, same. I just would love a tie, but yes, same. <laughs> Did you know that Jodie Foster was supposed to play Emma, but she had enrolled at Yale, so she turned it down? I didn't know that. Um, I like Deborah Winger in this movie. I'll just say that. Even though they feuded like crazy on set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, because she was going through, I read, like, cocaine addiction. When I was a little kid, I'll never forget this. This is a really weird memory. I saw her on Inside the Actor Studio because they used to play those on Bravo. And she talked about preparing for a role, how she spent the night in a cemetery. And I have been disturbed by this and have, like, remembered this fact for years now. (laughs) Because she was, like, a method actress. So she spent the night in a cemetery. And as a kid, I thought that was the scariest thing. I was like, how could you do that? No role is that good. It was for Urban Cowboy. That's what it was for. Well, that can lead us into our cemetery scene in Amadeus and talking about that movie too. Oh my God, yay. I'm so excited to talk about this. I really can't (laughs) wait. So Amadeus, the 1984 Best Picture winner, among many others, the description, the life, success, and troubles of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, as told by Antonio Salieri, the contemporaneous composer who was insanely jealous of Mozart's talent and claimed to have murdered him. It was directed by Milos Forman, starring F. Murray Abraham, Tom Hulse, Elizabeth Barrage, and Jeffrey Jones. It had an $18 million budget and grossed $90 million, so not as good as Terms of Endearment, but still a pretty strong showing. Precursor Awards, Forman won at DGA, With the Golden Globes, it won Motion Picture Drama, it won Actor Drama for Abraham, Screenplay, and then nominations here. Tom Hulse was nominated for Actor, and then Jeffrey Jones was nominated for Supporting Actor. It didn't win anything at the New York Films Critics Circle, but at the LA Films Critics Circle, it won Picture, Director, Actor for Abraham again, and Screenplay. With BAFTA... It won cinematography, makeup and hair, editing, and sound, and it was also nominated for film, actor for F. Murray Abraham, screenplay, production design, and costume design. And then at the Oscars, just like Terms of Endearment, it had 11 nominations. It won eight for picture, director for Foreman, adapted screenplay, actor for Abraham, art direction, costume design, makeup, and sound. And then the three other nominations were for Tom Hulse for actor, cinematography, and film editing. The other Best Picture nominees this year were The Killing Fields, A Passage to India, Places in the Heart, and A Soldier's Story. I will start off by saying this is my favorite period piece ever. So what are your general thoughts on Amadeus? This movie is so timeless. It's just Mm -hmm. Oh my god, it's so good. I'm like struggling to find the words to talk about it. I first actually watched this movie on a plane, which feels like it would be the kiss of death, right? Yeah. (laughs) I was on a long flight, saw that it was there. I was like, you know, people are raving about this. This was a few years ago. I hadn't seen it. Watched it, fully focused. And by the end, I was just like crying, overwhelmed by the experience of seeing this movie and it living up to whatever hype really exists around it. But I was just incredibly moved by F. Murray Abraham's performance and just felt like so much sadness about 
this Salieri character, but also about Mozart, and just felt like I had a completely new understanding of like what actors could do. And mm-hmm. it's not my favorite period piece, but it's definitely like up there. But anyway, so after I finished this movie, I was sitting next to this old man and he looks at me and he just goes, you watched one of the greatest movies of all time. (laughs) (laughs) And I just said, I was like, yes, I did. (laughs) Thank you for noticing. (laughs) And then we ended up talking about the movie and it was really, really sweet. But yeah, I love this movie. Rewatch was great as well. What do you like about it? What is there not to like about it? Mm -hmm. Um so good the performances i think the story is just so intriguing like you are immediately taken into this movie i think this works for me so well one because of the screenplay i think it's incredibly written i feel like it never stops and that to me like keeps my attention and i was always wondering what was going to happen next like yes we get the framing of we hear Salieri saying that he killed Mozart and like that is some of what draws you into this movie Mm -hmm. and then you get the flashbacks and you keep coming back to present day Salieri I think that's pretty cool how that works and it does work for me here I think Tom Hall says Mozart is just (laughs) phenomenal like so funny but kind of like terms of endearment like they're such different characters Mozart and Salieri Mm -hmm. but they work so well together and they go through such a wild arc mm-hmm. because by the end, like Salieri is still working against him basically, but working together at the same time. So I love like where this movie takes us. And then the atmosphere, just being in Vienna and the costumes, the cinematography, the editing, the sound, everything just, it's like a very masterful piece I agree with all of that. Um, One thing that Milos Forman does really well, and he does this in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as well, but I think even better here is that you have these moments, especially in the very beginning, like when this movie opens and it's an opening that's never really left me because it's so off at first. Like it's very disturbing. Like the way that they're eating the desserts outside of Salieri's door. Mm. And then you go in and he's just like laying on the ground. His neck is all bloody. And then we're following Mm. this cart through the streets all of a sudden. And it's absolutely gorgeous. Then we're in this asylum. And I'm like, I don't want to be here. When we finally get to Salieri, you are so... Like, I'm so intrigued by this character because of how the movie opens. I need to know this man laying on the floor has claimed to have killed one of the greatest composers of all time. Who is he? Like, what are his motivations? Mm -hmm. What is his story? I need to know everything. And the way that they start with the different pieces of music to see if this priest who's come to talk to Mm -hmm. Salieri, if he recognizes them. And when one is Mozart and he recognizes it. And then the way F. Marie Abraham says that it's not his is just like, Ooh, you get everything you need to know about that character right there. The jealousy, the way that he views music and how passionate he is about it, but how he also feels about Mozart his music and as a person is all right there in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So it hooks you right away. And then I'm like, I, this is a ride I don't want to get off of. I need to know everything that's coming. 
And I think a lot of what happens is so unexpected. And that also keeps drawing you forward into this story. You saying it's timeless, like the themes we have have been captured on film before. Like that isn't really new, but the way they do it is just so gripping. Yeah. I don't think any relationship, we see these relationships between men on screen all the time of like jealousy and genius and great thinkers and great art, but I don't think anything really comes close to this. Like, I don't know if it's the writing or the acting or just the combination of everything that's taking place in this movie, but I can honestly say I I haven't seen anything this good that depicts that, Mm -mm. and many have tried. (laughs) (laughs) I think I had originally watched this on a whim, hadn't heard much about it. And Mm -hmm. I think still to this day, like I don't hear Amadeus spoken about as much as I think it should have, like when we're talking about the Oscars and Best Picture winners. Totally. I think you have a handful of people who will list it maybe in their like top 10 of all time or as a great. I think most people can agree on it once they see it. But I think maybe the subject matter keeps people at a distance because... I think if I were to read the description, as someone who loves costume dramas, I would be like, I am in, sign me up, (laughs) anything that takes place in the 19th century, 18th century, great, I'm there. But a lot of people, that's not the case. Like, they want something more modern. They don't want to watch something about, like, classical music. This is not about classical music in the way that you think it is. This is about, like, (laughs) intrigue, and it's so... There's so much drama (laughs) that I love Mm -hmm. in this movie. And these characters, I think because it takes liberties with historical fact and really embellishes a lot and trusts the audience to know that like this isn't historical fact, this is a film, I think that benefits it. I think Salieri wasn't Mm -hmm. like this in real life. I think that's okay. This movie did make more people listen to his music. He was kind of a figure that had gone into the way of obscurity, but people started listening again when this came out. He has some incredible lines in this movie. Uh And I think by the end, when he starts calling himself mediocrity, that's the moment just came full circle for me. Yep. And you talking about people like not really listing this on their like favorite best picture winners, I will be very bold and say this is in my top three, if not Whoa. number two. Okay. It's in my top 10 for sure. It's high up. What I really love also about this movie is that with everything Salieri does, you learn more about Mozart. So it's so different from your standard music biopic staple, which we talk about ad nauseum Oscar season. This is so different because... The structure makes you realize that it's not some, like, cradle to grave. I'm going to depict everything that happens in this person's life, even though there are those touchstone elements, like like Mozart struggles with alcoholism, and we see his rise, and we see his fall. And But because it's told through this flashback structure through another character's eyes, we're learning so much about him that we wouldn't learn about otherwise, and also learning about the Salieri character who is even more compelling to me than Mozart. Totally. And that's why, again, it's just so unexpected. Want me to blow your mind again with the title? In Latin, you know what Amadeus means? No, what? It means love of God or a person that's loved by God or one who loves God, which here works doubly because Hmm. Salieri is obsessed with faith 
and obsessed Mm -hmm. with what God loves and what God cares about and his own relationship with God. And literally, (laughs) Amadeus means to be loved by God, like this person. And that is what Salieri believes about him. And he's, he's upset that God would bestow this talent on Mozart and not him. And he would give him mediocrity instead. Mm -hmm. And that's history. But the title is brilliant because it works that way. Part of me is surprised that this did really well only because of the way it handles faith and religion and God. Mm -hmm. Because it's saying some pretty provocative things. Oh, yeah. Salieri is doing some like very unfaithful things. As Mozart is rising, he is becoming more and more obsessed with becoming God himself. And he has a line like, I could finally triumph over God. Cracked. (laughs) Maniacal, yeah. Yeah. Well, like, and you know that about him so early on, because at the beginning of the film, like, when we get our first flashbacks, you see Mozart as a child, like, playing the piano blindfolded for these dignitaries. And you Mm -hmm. see Salieri in Italy, and, like, he's praying that, praying to God that he becomes this famous composer, and that he'll be, like, faithful in return. F. Murray Abraham's face when he is recalling the death of his father as the person who is in his way, he gives this like wild little smile as he's reminiscing on it. It's really subtle. I love it because we know, again, everything we need to know about the character right there. I'm like, oh, you're you're evil. Mm-hmm. Like you have a warped view <laughs> of faith and the world and everything. Yeah, definitely. And to contrast that, like Salieri, he lives this life, I think, as a very a conservative person, a person who has a lot of social capital, especially in those spaces with the emperor and other higher ups. Whereas Mozart is super immature. He has this out of control laugh <laughs> that would drive anyone crazy. And I think especially if you think you're going to like be bestowed by God with some great gift of music and you see that this is the person who has it, of course, you're mm-hmm. going to be annoyed. <laughs> I love his laugh so much. Mm-hmm. I feel like I shouldn't. But the way the movie ends with that laugh mm-hmm. as it fades from Salieri's face, like, ugh, it stays in chills. your head. Yeah. The laugh mm-hmm. is good. And it's all the time. <laughs> I think that's so fun, too, though, because I think I, you know, growing up and learning about composers and, like, people from this time period, you always imagine someone like Mozart to be really stuffy, because when you're a kid, that's how you imagine, Mm -hmm. like, classical music to be. You think of, like, the powdered wigs and it just being boring, but he's not that at all. So I think that's just a really fun layer to the movie, and Mozart was an Aquarius, so we should not be surprised that he's like this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think what's really interesting about Salieri also is that he he's a great reader of music. He understands music and he knows genius when he sees it or hears it, but he can never be that. So it's like this great mm-hmm. curse because he knows what it takes, but he can't get there. Ooh, it's just almost heartbreaking that he has to deal with that and that that like plagues him throughout his life. But of course, like as Mozart is writing these forbidden operas, there's another layer to it, which is that like he can't step out of the box and be creative in the way that Mozart can. He's like so beholden to societal norms and rules. And that's, I think, another great comment that this movie makes on art and artists. 
But of course, like he resorts to sabotage, which makes this movie even more fascinating and fun to watch. That all resonates really well in one of my favorite scenes from the movie. It comes pretty late, but it's when they're both composing Mozart's final piece together. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in Salieri's eyes of like, as Mozart is telling him what to write down, that it starts to click for him. And you can tell that he's saying to himself, like, I would have never done that. But oh my God, Mm -hmm. like he's seeing Mozart's mastery come through. And that's definitely when you see like what you said. And right, because even though he wants this man out of his way, he wants everything that this man has. Death would be worse because we would no longer get Mozart's music. So he has this inner conflict too, right? Because he doesn't want he doesn't want Mozart and his music around because it bothers him that he could never be that great. But mm-hmm. without that, he's ultimately a lover of music. He's so passionate about this. You can see it in Abraham's eyes as he's playing Salieri that that's his one true love. It's just what would he rather? I think that is the best scene to describe his performance because that's where you can see him just furiously like writing it down before he dies so we we can get this final piece but also the wonder and how disturbed he is that he could never possibly get that and be that way yeah there's a quote from little women that i wrote down when i watched this that made me think of salieri (laughs) and it's an amy march quote i think they're kind of kindred spirits in a way she says that's just why because talent isn't genius and no amount of energy can make it so i want to be great or nothing that's salieri Mm. wow yeah i also know that it's like so cruel but i do love the scenes when the sabotage has gotten really bad after the marriage of figaro happens and mozart's informed that his father dies he writes don giovanni salieri like preys on this and he tricks him into believing that his father has risen from the dead and Mm -hmm. like oh my god when i (laughs) first saw that i remember just thinking like "Ooh, he is this guy is in deep like there's no recovering from that yeah and when you're saying this to a priest it's like good lord Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) you're in trouble and the priest is just as gobsmacked by the story Mm -hmm. That mask, that black, like, happy, sad, front and back mask is just perfect. It's terrifying, and you have this impending doom, which eventually comes to Mozart. And the way he turns, I mean, the father, too, and the actual father wears it, but also how Salieri mirrors this, but, like, as he turns and it goes from happy to sad, I think is really great. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. So good. The shot of when the father arrives and you're you have this low angle shot on the stairs and the dad just like takes up the entire frame with this black gown that he's wearing is mm. Mm. oh it's so good. I also really love the scene when Mozart is like mocking Salieri. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a pretty brilliant part of the movie when he's just like doing that impression of him. I really like that. That's probably my favorite scene besides the dictation scene, which you mentioned already. Because I I just, I think you get great moments of acting from both Hulse and Abraham in those moments. And you learn a lot about their characters. Mm -hmm. The thing that makes me the most upset about this movie, though, is that right now the director's cut is the only 
version that you can stream. You can't stream the theatrical cut, and the theatrical cut is better because some Mm. of the additional scenes that they put in the director's cut, to me, I mean, it's still like a great film, obviously, but they kind of weaken the original edit, and you just don't need them. It's just kind of repetitive. One, I also forgot to mention baby Cynthia Nixon in this movie. (laughs) Yes. Oh, she is so (laughs) good. She's so good, and I forgot she was in this until this watch. So in the director's cut, there's a scene when Mozart's wife goes to, he really needs this job. He really needs this position. And she goes to Salieri and he propositions her in that moment. Like he's like, come back, you know, like he'll get the position. Mm -hmm. That's not in the theatrical cut. Oh, wow. It Mm. kind of eliminates this additional layer of jealousy that's there that has to do with these women Because to me, that almost feels kind of out of character for Salieri. And instead, it ends right before where you see Salieri's wonder, like looking at what Mozart has worked on. And then it cuts. And I'm Mm. trying to remember what it cuts to. But I just remember thinking like, this is a way better way to tell the story. And just we already kind of know this feud that's happening. We don't really need this additional information. And it feels kind of maybe out of character for her. Yeah, maybe that more so is how I feel. Because it just adds to make Salieri this evil, evil character. And tricking Mozart's wife. And maybe partly to see like how far she would go for Mozart. But I think overall, I don't remember the first time I saw this, if it was the theatrical or the director's cut. But I watched the director's cut this time as well. And... Being at three hours, I think it's like 20 minutes longer than the theatrical. I thought it still flowed really well. I didn't mm-hmm. really know that it was three hours. So I think either way, you're getting a great movie. Yeah. And if you're like determined to find the theatrical cut, I'm sure it's out there. You might be able to find it at the library. I don't know. <laughs> um, this <laughs> yeah. is my plea to Criterion. If anyone who like works there or anything is listening... Please release Amadeus so we can have the theatrical cut and the directors (laughs) and every other special feature that you want to throw on there. (laughs) There was a Twitter rumor and I absolutely need this. Oh, I forgot about that Twitter rumor. I hate that. Don't tell me that unless it's real. So same question as last time. If you were making this today and you had to recast Salieri and Mozart, who would you choose? You would probably hate my Mozart. But I think I being this like, you know, already I do. (laughs) I'm disappointed (laughs) in you. But I think being this cocky, youthful genius plays so well with Timothy Chalamet. I think my choice is better, but that's fine. Um, I knew you were going to pick that. I think he would have to overperform a little bit just based on what he's done. But I think he could do it. Can you think of how annoying that would be, though? He would be so annoying. (laughs) Isn't that kind of the point? (laughs) I don't think Wolfie is that annoying all the time, though. Like, I... Never mind. It's fine. (laughs) Who would your Mozart be? I would actually pick Nicholas Holt. Um, I was thinking a lot about the favorite, and I feel like he's, like, the right age. Like, a little bit older, but Mm -hmm. close to the right age. He... He can do the comedy and, like, the weirdness of Mozart and, like, and is really good in costume dramas. He was wonderful in The Favorite and The Great. He deserved an Oscar nomination for The Favorite, I think. So 
Timothy Chalamet is the pick, though, I feel. And for my Salieri pick, I'm obsessed. I'm going with her again. I would say Glenn Close. Ooh. Like, give me, like, Albert Nobbs, but also (laughs) add in some gender dynamic to this duo. She would be really good at playing this, like, two-sided good and evil personality. I think she would be great. I, that would be really good. I love that. My Salieri is super obvious, and it's Daniel Day-Lewis. He can play a character who is more of a villain, who's like able to navigate the politics that F. Murray Abraham Salieri does, and he's an incredible actor, and I think you really have to be to deliver the, a performance like this. Mm-hmm. My cracked answer, which I shouldn't have criticized you for, Timmy, because... Um, I think Adam Driver could do it, especially because in real life, their age difference wasn't that much. It was only like five or six years. Okay. So you don't need to have the exaggerated age difference as much as they do in the movie. Mm-hmm. So a Nicholas Holt Adam mm-hmm. Driver version could be good. Interesting. A Timmy Adam Driver version would be funny because I would just be rooting so hard for Salieri, which is not the point. <laughs> If any of you listeners have ideas for an alternately casted version of this, let us know if, if you think your choices mm-hmm. would be better than this. I also thought of Brad Pitt for Salieri, but I don't think that works. Ooh, I think he's too hot. I Like, not that Daniel J. Lewis isn't, but, like, I think you have to be more distinguished, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I did think of Denzel and Daniel Kaluuya. I thought of Denzel, too. I was like, ooh, especially thinking of the tragedy Mm-hmm. Like, he could totally do that role. And I feel like, and we know Daniel Kaluuya can do, like, the emotional intensity. Oh, that would be great, actually. Wouldn't I that be that. fun? Ooh. Yeah, I think that might be good. I think part of this plays really well, too, because I feel like these actors aren't super well-known, like a name like Brad Pitt or George Clooney or Denzel. So I think part of that mystery and, like, discovering these characters and these actors also helped with this movie and obviously mm-hmm. f Murray abraham has been in a lot of stuff oh do you know which voice performance tom hulse gave in a disney movie once you know it you'll be like whoa because i thought his voice sounded so familiar when i was watching this again and then i realized what it was i have no idea he was quasimodo in the hunchback of notre dame oh my god mm-hmm <laughs> And that's like <laughs> Frollo in that is kind of like Salieri in a way. Very much, yeah. Hmm. I'll have to rewatch that now. Do you think anything or anyone was snubbed? This is another film that got 11 nominations at the Oscars, which is pretty strong showing. Mm-hmm. But I actually would give it one more. I would make room for Elizabeth Barrage. As Mozart's wife. Okay. I think she's underrated in this. She did get a BAFTA nomination. I think maybe had Cynthia Nixon been known more at the time, she could have maybe gotten into, but mm-hmm. it's a very small role. Yeah. I do love her, though. This is one where I love that it got 11 nominations because it's not a movie I would have thought the Academy would have gone for. So keep all 11. I don't think anything was snubbed necessarily. It got a lot of the technicals where it should have gotten nominations and also Mm -hmm. above the line. So I'm very happy with these. Yeah. I mean, it's a great collection of nominations and wins. So again, with our two lead performers competing against each other, 
Would you give best actor to F. Murray Abraham or Tom Hulse? Did the Academy get it right? I think the Academy got it right again. I would definitely give it to F. Murray Abraham. If this were made today, I definitely think Mozart could have been in supporting and also won. Just like what we mm-hmm. said with terms. Do you agree or no? I do. I mean, it's hard because The Killing Fields was also a popular movie. But I, yeah, I think if today this happened, we would definitely get a split where even though the movie is called Amadeus, Tom Hulse would go in supporting. Mm-hmm. Very <laughs> that is unpar. 100% what would happen. <laughs> I do think the Academy got it right. I'm going to say something that's going to shock everyone. For years, I always thought the best winner in the category was Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood, and I think he's been dethroned slightly Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is a moment. It's very close. It is a moment. <laughs> I might regret it tomorrow, but it's just this performance is crazy good. I mean, there's just so, so much to it. Every single time he's on screen, I cannot take my eyes off of him and it's like he can do so much with just a look you know instantly Mm -hmm. what this character is about and I think he has so much to do in this movie and he evolves so much as a character throughout he gets like more and more determined and his actions become worse and worse and you could say the same thing I guess about Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood they're both two like stunning performances for me but yeah I think I would give him the edge here I think this is my favorite win. Yeah, this is my favorite win in the category ever. Mm, Amazing. Do you think its makeup win was for Salieri's transformation as like his older version? Definitely. I mean, that's that's the biggest part of it. But then also you have all of those wigs with like the in the powdered faces and then that intense period makeup that I feel like that was an easy in the bag Oscar for this movie. Mm hmm. And yeah, I think the prosthesis works there for him. I agree. Oh, wow. I love this performance so much. It's so good. Like even under the prosthetics, you're just like, whoa, Mm -hmm. his eyes just sparkle in a bad way. Well, his eyes pop the entire movie. Like when he has Mm -hmm. that black mask on from Mozart's dad, you can tell that it's his eyes. So spooky. Very expressive human. We forgot to say this, but our other nominees in the category were Jeff Bridges for Starman, which I have not seen. Albert Finney for Under the Volcano, which I also have not seen. But Albert Finney, I know, is a perennial favorite (laughs) at the Oscars. And Sam Waterston for The Killing Fields. I feel like if you don't know who Sam Waterston is, he was in Law & Order. That's what I know him from always. So how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think they would still respond to it really well. They still like costume dramas. It is an epic film. It revolves around a relationship between two men about art. Like, this is mm-hmm. right in the Academy's wheelhouse. I think they still would go for it today. I agree. I think it's a good mix of drama and just enough thriller, but not too much where, like, it would mm-hmm. put them off. Right. It's just easy to watch, even though it's so long. Yeah. Like, great pacing, great performances, very audience friendly i feel as a very long movie and if you could give this movie one oscar what would it be it's so hard because so many elements in this movie work off of each other so like mm-hmm. awarding one thing is like forgetting everything else and that's i know so disappointing it's really hard you can cheat if you want to i did a tie 
the last time so okay well then fine um again <laughs> since we can't give a picture i would do f murray abraham and i'll go with art direction i don't think you can go wrong by picking anything here but i think all of the sets are great i'm happy you like being there for a change i <laughs> you know love my movies back then my answer here i'm just gonna go with one even though there are a lot of deserving components but I have to do best actor for F. Murray Abraham. He steals the show for me. He's what I remember. Love his performance. It's just the best. Honorary award goes to Tom Hulse's laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Or no. Please, no. (laughs) I can't do it. Okay, so I'm glad that we got to talk about both of these movies today from back-to-back years. Best picture winners, best director winners. I think two movies that might be kind of underseen as far as best picture winners go, but that I would recommend checking out. I think mm-hmm. both of them are a good snapshot of what people wanted from movies, especially in the 80s, and feature some great performances. And I'm glad we got to view it through this weird trivia fact as well about the <laughs> two people in lead categories from the same movie, which yeah. never happens anymore. Do you feel like it ever will again? I don't know. I I really don't. That's hard to say because they're just going to keep doing category fraud. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just going to get worse. But hopefully if we have a co-lead film, it'll happen. Yeah, I'm glad we got to talk about these movies. One that I absolutely love and one that you made me feel better about. So thank you. This (laughs) usually happens here. But next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be talking about the newly released and highly praised Belfast by Kenneth Branagh. I'm very excited to see this, to see what all of the hype is about, to see the Mm -hmm. performances that are getting predicted, you know, picture, director, everything. Yeah, I can't wait. It's our best picture front runner at the moment. I cried watching a clip of this today on Twitter. So I'm really just, I don't know how I feel about seeing this movie. I'm excited just to see what the hype is about and to hopefully find it as warm and magical as everybody else does. Kenneth Branagh's career is also a mixed bag, so we can talk about that a little bit, too, mm-hmm. and what this movie means for him as a director and in this Oscar race. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at OscarWildPod. If you have any suggestions, you can email them to us at OscarWildPod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye.